Well, let's pray. Father, give us understanding of what we read here. Uh, Give us encouragement and instruction from it. Give us uh, reason to believe and to rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about the prayer, Your Kingdom Come. The Lord's Prayer is one of the most famous and most prayed prayers in the world. And its second request uh, teaches us to pray, Your Kingdom Come. Now, this may seem hopelessly backward to pray for a kingdom when, you know, forward-thinking Australians might rather be wishing for a republic. On the other hand, it may seem completely unnecessary to pray for God's kingdom to come because surely if God is the Almighty, he always reigns and his kingdom doesn't need to come. It's established and always has been. And yet, Jesus gives us this prayer to pray, your kingdom come. For the kingdom of God is the kingdom of light and love and peace and goodness and justice. The kingdom of God is the kingdom, really, that all our republics, all our constitutional monarchies kind of grope towards, aspire to and wish to emulate. The kingdom of God is the order of freedom, of equity, of security. It's the order of interdependence. It's the order that we all want to see and want to live in. However, it is the kingdom that is contested. It's opposed. It's partially occupied, if you like, by powers hostile to God. The Bible names various powers hostile to God and to his intentions for his creation. Let me list some. Firstly, and famously, Satan, the devil, the foremost representative of opposition to God with all his unclean spirits hoarding behind him, the underminer of God, the fomenter of discontent and doubt and resistance towards God. But there are others. There's the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, says Ephesians 6.12. And in the apocalyptic books of the Bible, like Daniel, which we heard a bit from, these powers, these heavenly powers, manifest their influence in human life by such things as violent and arrogant empires, often pictured as beasts in these writings. A third power, a hostile power to God, camped out in his world, is sin. Sin itself is at times pictured as a power that enslaves humans and brings them to ruin and into the hands of God's final enemy, which is death. Death is the undoing of life, and it's utterly opposed to God, who is the giver of life. Satan's desire is to entangle humanity in the cords of sin and throw us then into the jaws of death. When we pray to God, your kingdom come, we are praying that God would overcome these enemies, 
that he would ride out like the king that he is and win victory, deliver safety, security and rescue. That God would reassert his order of peace and goodness and would set right the disturbance in the world once and for all. The language the Bible uses of kingdom and principalities and powers and Satan and sin and death, this is pretty dramatic language and sometimes set in apocalyptic writings. And so it is, therefore, figurative and coded and symbolic. But the Bible uses this language to speak about a real problem and a real need for a deep, transformative confrontation that overcomes evil and reorders the world in a way that's perhaps unimaginable to us now, but that God has in store. And I've chosen three passages to go with this uh, meditation on your kingdom come, and I want to see how they help us pray your kingdom come. So let's kind of work through them briefly, each one. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, first of all, that God has a king for his kingdom. Uh, In my vision at night, says Daniel, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God's kingdom is not only his invisible and unembodied reign. There is one like a son of man that is, like a human being, who is to be invested with all the authority, glory and sovereign power of God's kingdom. The Old Testament had this modelled, if you like, and prototyped in the reign of David. David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be God's chosen king. He was Christed, if you like. He was made the Christ. And he suffered He suffered through Saul's suspicion of him, through Saul's hostility and jealousy and persecution. He suffered before ascending ultimately to the throne to overcome Israel's national enemies and secure the kingdom. There's a prototype of God's king. However, when Jesus came, calling himself the Son of Man, in an echo of Daniel... He was a strange kind of king. He was not interested in spears or armies or booting out Romans. His targets were instead disease, unclean spirits, sin and death. His adversary was the devil. And his big move was a kind of, well, it was a strange kind of assault, if it was an assault, if it was an attack, a a kind of manoeuvre. What did Jesus do? He went calmly to his death on a cross. But he did this after saying, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, that is the devil, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And in drawing all people to himself, His death became, in some sense, our death. The death that follows our sin. The death that we owe to God. 
And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. The new life that the king who rose from the dead shares with his people. There's, you know, springboarding off Daniel. God has a king for his kingdom. One like a son of man. Uh, Second, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. God's king will overcome all God's enemies. This passage begins with the gift of resurrection life that Jesus promises. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The passage moves from there, though, into the ultimate coming of God's kingdom and the destruction of all hostile powers. We read on in verse 24, Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Again, the figurative language is describing a restoration of God's original intention for creation. That phrase, he has put everything under his feet, is a quotation. Quotation from Psalm 8, verse 6. Psalm 8 is itself a meditation on the meaning of the creation of human beings in Genesis 1. Psalm 8, 6 says of human beings, You, God, have crowned them with glory and honour. You have given them dominion. You have put all things under their feet. And so Christ is going to restore God's original intention for creation. God's kingdom comes when human beings are no longer subject to the power of Satan with his lies and malice, no longer subject to the principalities and powers of the heavenly realms driving the chaos of violence and arrogant empire, no longer subject to sin, which marches us to our own self-destructive acts and no longer subject to death, which takes from us everything we have and gives us only tears. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray for our freedom from all this evil. We pray that things may be as good as they can be. Verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And God's being all in all would you know, seem to be a totalitarian nightmare if it were anyone but God who was all in all. Only God is fit to be all in all. For he is the one who needs nothing. He is the one who gives everything. And when he is all in all, all is well. Let's thirdly look at Luke 21, 25 to 38. That the coming of God's kingdom is a crisis for creation, the whole world. This is Luke 21, 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. 
People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That again is apocalyptic language to describe the tumult of history, if you like. But hidden in the crisis is redemption, is liberation, rescue and release. Verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, in the first instance, these words of Jesus apply to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. All of this is said as part of a discussion in Jerusalem about the destruction of the temple. And hence the comment in verse 32, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. However, the judgment of Jerusalem and its destruction, which Jesus foretold and which came about in AD 70, is not the end of these matters. For the same reckoning, we read in verse 35, will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. And so what shall we do in the face of this crisis? Well, Jesus says in verse 34, Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. If we forget that God's kingdom is coming, actually whether we pray for it or not, it is coming. If we focus on the pleasures or the pains of this life, our hearts will become weighed down. It's odd, isn't it, that chasing pleasure, carousing and drunkenness, it won't lighten your heart in the end, says Jesus. It will weigh your heart down. For mere pleasures are meaningless and a burden in the end. And so, be always on the watch, he says in verse 36. Lift your mind and your mind's eye to God's coming kingdom. Refresh your heart in the remembrance of his kingdom. It's a good reason to come to church so we hear these things. And re- refresh our heart in our hearts the remembrance of his kingdom and of the redemption that will come when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes. That there is to be liberation from the devil and all evil, from sin and death, from grief and pain, from meaninglessness and imperfection. And so watch and pray. Pray, says Jesus, that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The Lord's Prayer prays, your kingdom come, and it also prays, save us from the time of trial. We may fear what comes upon the world and what it means for us. We may fear pandemics, climate change, geopolitical conflicts, There is much to test us. There's much for us to be anxious about and fearful of. But when Christ encourages us to pray that we may escape this, that God may save us from the time of trial, we should do that because, you know, he gives us these things to pray because he cares for us and he intends to answer them. 
He doesn't give us these things to pray for no reason because he has no intention of answering them. He says, pray, save us from the time of trial because he intends to do so. He will answer the prayer. He'll bring us through. Even if it seems unsurvivable what we might face, the anxieties that might weigh us down, the trials that we might have to walk through, yet Christ wants us to stand before him. He wants to set us free when his kingdom comes. And so we pray, your kingdom come. And we believe that when we pray, he will come. And he will save us and we will stand before him on that day. Let's pray now.